This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Gordon Mackenzie. The Spy by James Fenimore Cooper. Editor's Introduction. Cooper was born in 1789. His earliest memories must have been of what was then the frontier, for when he was a baby his father took him, with his eleven brothers and sisters, to the shore of Otsego Lake, where he bought a large tract of land and laid out the Cooperstown, which still bears that name. Here the boy grew up, on an impressive estate but under frontier conditions, until he was sent to Albany, not far away, to be tutored in the fashion of the day by a clergyman in preparation for college. At thirteen, not an unusual age in a day when, for underclassmen, the colleges were little more than advanced academies, he was admitted to Yale. He was not studious, and seems to have fallen in with the element who went there like John Trumbull's Tom Brainless to doze away for years, in sleep and slothfulness and play, and at the end of half that time he was dismissed. Soon after, in 1806, he spent a year at sea on a merchantman, and after his return he secured a commission as midshipman in the United States Navy. Here he served from 1808 until 1811, when he resigned to marry the daughter of a Tory who had fought for King George in the War of the Revolution. From 1811 to 1820 he was a busy citizen and family man, living part of the time at Cooperstown and the rest in the countryside, nearer New York City. Although authorship was equally unsuspected by himself or his friends, his experience in these first thirty years of his life had been varied and fruitful for a coming novelist and critic. He had seen life on land and sea, in town and country, and in the three states that converge on the mouth of the Hudson. He had known the frontier, lived on the land fought over during the Revolution, and from his father, his tutor, and his wife's family, had learned to see the country and his countrymen with observant and critical eyes. In 1820, almost by accident, he undertook to write a story, imitatively attempting a novel of English society life, a life of which he had no first-hand experience. The one important consequence was that he was encouraged to try again and was prevailed on by his friends to deal with material that was more familiar to him. The result was The Spy, which he had to issue at his own expense, but which was so successful that his third venture, The Pioneers, was sold out on the day of publication in 1823. With The Pioneers, Cooper completely found himself as a novelist. In The Spy, he had turned in general to the subject matter that was nearer to his own experience, but this story was of a life different from his own. The pioneers set him on the way with his most famous series, the Leatherstocking Tales, based on five stages in the conquest of the frontier, all preceding his own day, to be sure, for they run from 1740 to 1793, but all normal chapters in the development of the late colonial and early national periods. Nevertheless, for a time he turned away from the chronicles of Natty Bumpo to write The Pilot, 
his first sea story, and Lionel Lincoln, the first and only one of a projected series of historical tales of the thirteen colonies. But in 1826 and 1827 he wrote The Last of the Mohicans and The Prairie, and then after a long lapse in 1840 and 1841, the remaining two, The Pathfinder and The Deer Slayer. The order in which they should be read as one continued story is quite different from the order in which they were written. Happens to be alphabetical rather than chronological. The stories deal successively with Deerslayer, a young woodsman in the middle of the eighteenth century, and continue with this same character under different descriptive names, as Hawkeye, the hero of The Last of the Mohican, a story of the French and Indian War, next Pathfinder, then Leatherstocking, the hero of The Pioneers, in the decade just before 1800, and last with the trapper who in 1803 left the farming lands of New York to go westward with the emigrants who were moving out to the government land grants on The Prairie. On The Spy and the Leatherstocking series, his fame as a novelist rests. But once started with his pen, he could not content himself with stories of the romantic past. He was living in a very absorbing time of chance and change, and he had definite opinions about what was going on. Moreover, in 1826, he went abroad with his family, and the six years and over that he spent on the other side of the Atlantic strengthened his belief in the theory of his own government, but filled him with conscious disapproval of the difference between America as it was, and America as it might have been. He left the field of fiction to write Notions of the Americans, picked up by a traveling bachelor, a book that offended both the English and the Americans by its criticisms of each, and pleased neither by its commendations. He wrote three novels located in Italy, Switzerland, and Germany to show how charming the old world was and how mistaken in its system of government and thereby gave more offense. By the time that he was ready to return to America, he had a stock of vivid impressions and uncompromising opinions, and a peculiarly untactful method of expressing them. He was about to earn Lowell's comment on him in The Fable for Critics, both for his honesty and the price it cost him. Quote, there is one thing in Cooper I like, too, and that is that on manners he lectures his countrymen gratis. Not precisely so, either, because for a rarity he is paid for his tickets in unpopularity. Now he may overcharge his American pictures, but you'll grant there's a good deal of truth in his strictures, and I honor the man who is willing to sink half his present repute for the freedom to think, and, when he has thought, be his cause strong or weak, will risk t'other half for the freedom to speak. Caring not for what vengeance the mob has in store, let that mob be the upper ten thousand or lower. End quote. After his long stay abroad, his friend S. F. B. Morse, artist and inventor, had prepared him for the worst that he was to expect in the contrast between Europe and America. There is nothing new in New York. Everybody is driving after money, as usual, and there is an alarm of fire every half hour, as usual, and the pigs have the freedom of the city, as usual, 
so that in these respects, at least, you will find New York as you left it. Yet, though he did not expect to find the culture of Athens, or the wisdom of Plato's Republic, he seemed bitterly disappointed not to, and when he spoke, in Homeward Bound, and Home as Found, his countrymen felt that it was more in anger than in sorrow. He clung to a belief in the fundamental soundness in American political theory. I have seen enough to be satisfied that, with the majority of those who affect to have opinions, anti-American sentiments are more in favor than American. The heart of the nation, however, is sound, or else God knows what would become of us. And again, Every hour that I stay at home convinces me more and more that society has had a somerset, and that the elite is at the bottom. Naturally enough, both the upper ten thousand and the lower attacked him. There followed libel suit after libel suit, with Cooper usually the winner, but winner with a sore heart. As early as 1834 he wrote, Thank God I am still young, and in the full vigor of both mind and body, and I do not see but that some gentlemanly and suitable competence may yet offer to take the place of that from which I am driven by my own country. In the last event I can return to Europe, and continue to write, for in that quarter of the world I am at least treated with common decency. There is no denying that he was roughly handled, but the chief source of his trouble was a needless aggressiveness that showed itself in most of his attitudes and relations. Like many of his type, he was heavy-handed and thin-skinned, a combination of Dr. Sam Johnson and William Sylvanus Baxter. It disturbed him to be ignored, and it tried him to be noticed. He lacked genuine self-confidence, and was always trying to reassure himself by self-assertion. He made hard work of living, because he was the embodiment of his crude and oversensitive young country. This had appeared in his comments abroad. There are a few Englishmen who pass you as if they were afraid that some tailor had broke loose, and always look the other way until you are passed, and then they are always staring after you to see if you are somebody. But he was in a dilemma between the annoyance of being mistaken for an Englishman and the ignominy of being taken as a typical American. As for myself, I know nothing of Europe through cafés and valets de place. I make no acquaintances with countesses and diligences, and do not see grandees at restaurants, and scarcely know the name of an opera dancer. You see I shall return as ignorant as I came out, at least in the opinion of the galloping gentry, our ancient travelled illuminati. And he was equally on guard in his homeland. He had little to do with literary people. Night before last I was at a literary soiree. Bryant, Willis, Glidden, Dr. Robinson were there. I was glad to see the two last. The two were not authors. Music had no place in his experience, and poetry none, and drama hardly more. Of one of the gifted actresses of the day he wrote, Mrs. Butler is making a furor uptown, but I seldom go there. He would not attend Jenny Lynn's concerts, nor even pay her the compliment of his greetings. I was asked, but did not choose to go five miles into the country, of a cold evening, in order to look at a singer of no personal charm. He was so little interested in literature that there is no fund of allusion to it, even to fiction in his letters. There is not a single reference to any story writer except Scott, and of the four to him 
not one that reveals any spontaneous interest in his novels. To Morse he wrote, The Heidenmauer is not equal to The Bravo, but it is a good book, and better than two-thirds of Scots. They may say it is like his, if they please. They have said it of every book I have written, even the pilot. And to his wife, By the way, I have been told Scott, while at Naples, declared that a person you love had more genius than any living writer. In all the extent of Cooper's unpublished letters and journals, there are only two expressions of enthusiasm for literature. One was for his own daughter's insipid rural hours. Quote, the purity of mind, the simplicity, elegance, and knowledge they manifest must, I think, produce a strong feeling in your favor with all the pure and good. End quote. The other is noted in his diary of March 10, 1848. Quote, Finished Revelation, a most extraordinary book. End quote. While the sentiments commend the honest feelings of the author in both cases, the range of reading indicated by them is surely somewhat limited. In the campaign for freedom of speech carried on for eight years by this complacent author, but dissatisfied patriot, and he was an undeniable patriot, Cooper's experience was of a sort that has often been repeated by men of his kind. He was unusual, first of all in having a mind independent enough to form even silent opinions that were in a disagreement with those of the majority. He was more unusual still in having the courage, or the recklessness, to disagree aloud. When he had said his say, his neighbors began to cavil at him, respectable people to avoid him, and the newspapers to distort what he had said, and to abuse him for what he had never said at all. Stung to the quick, injured and innocent, but tragically incapable of keeping out of ever-fresh complications, he eventually was almost a social outcast. For a while he had the courage and the honesty with which he had started, a circle of friends, some sympathetic, more apologetic, and a thousand enemies who hated him with a whole-souled and largely unjustifiable hatred. It is a sad round which all but the most extraordinary free speakers seem doomed to travel, and Cooper did not escape it, but he did have the strength and good fortune to pass clear through it. With 1842 his warfare against the public came to an end, and theirs against him. He spent his last years happily at Cooperstown, recovered much of his lost popularity as a novelist, and returned into an era of good feeling. It was Cooper, the turbulent patriot, who lost favor with his countrymen. Cooper, the historical novelist, was always a people's favorite. In a strictly literary way, the two unfortunate facts about the stories that involved Cooper in his conflict with the American public were his intense interest in actual life and the theory of social life, coupled with his insistence in dealing with social problems in story form. The combination was unsuccessful. But his interest in actual life, coupled with his gifts as a storyteller, were the sources of his success when he was content to tell stories for their own sakes, and not for the sake of proving something. The former type of undertaking accounts for the failure of his first novel, Precaution, the latter for the success of his second, The Spy. In The Spy there was room for his deep-rooted enthusiasm of American life. He knew the region, 
and when he came to the descriptions of natural scenes, which had a place in the development of the story, his hills and vales, his forest and river, even his sunshine and storm, were painted to the life. He knew the events that had taken place against these settings, the human passions raised by a resort to arms against a mother country, and the deep doubts of many a colonist who resented British harshness, but was reluctant to throw off British rule. He knew the characters who were implicated in the struggle, and could present with equal understanding the great revolutionary leader, the trooper, the spy, the camp follower, the invading soldiery, the timid loyalist, and the colonist fighting under British colors. And the spy gave him his opportunity, too, to tell the kind of tale for which he had a natural aptitude, a story of rapid action, hand-to-hand -hand conflict, pursuit, capture, escape, of conviction and reprieve, of fire and sword and storm. The story is crowded with event, and with the suspense preceding fateful happenings. From the moment when Mr. Harper enters the rain-beaten country house of the Whartons, and the quickly successive entrances of Harvey Birch, the suspect, and of Henry Wharton, the disguised soldier, the sense of reality is so stirred in the reader that he feels he is reading of real life. If the action flags, as it does during the too prolonged wordiness of Dr. Sitgreave, and of the colorless Katie, it is even yet halted by characters who are supposed to be bores, and who are true to the life even in their retarding of the movement. It is because Cooper's best stories are full of the life of reality, and the life of action, that they are still read today. Any mature reader knows how rare this richness and depth of substance is in fiction. But in acknowledging this quality in Cooper's work, the candid reader will admit that it is strong enough not only to have kept them alive, but to have done so in spite of many weaknesses of a minor sort. Very likely both the virtues and the defects in his composition arose from the fact that he was an exceedingly rapid writer. In less than thirty years he wrote forty volumes, and this in spite of the distractions of travel and the disturbances of mind that came from his years of controversy. He committed the occasional sins that a rapid writer is likely to. But Cooper also fell into literary ways that became the habits of a rapid writer. Of the version of the novel reprinted in this volume, Cooper wrote in the introduction reprinted with it that, quote, the style has been revised, end quote. He admits that it was badly written in its original form, but the style is still defective. Cooper's revising did not prevent him, for example, from letting stand the sentence which says that Caesar's mouth, quote, was only tolerated on account of the double row of pearls it contained, end quote, and the sentence stating that the three troopers who came to Mr. Wharton's table, quote, under the rough exterior induced by actual and arduous service, concealed the manners of gentlemen, end quote. Even a toothless mouth would have to be tolerated, and the officers, as their conduct proved, revealed the manners of the well-bred. Cooper wrote at the end of an age when the author, quote, took his pen in hand, end quote, to address, quote, the gentle reader, end quote. The printed page was not supposed to resemble closely even the best informal discourse. 
there is a prevailing difference between the style of all the fiction up to 1830 and the style of even the most scrupulous writers of today. Elegance was the desirable quality, rather than the simplicity which is sought today. But even at this Cooper strutted and gesticulated on paper far beyond the manner of his period. The interview between the lovers in Chapter 6, for instance, is beyond belief, and the meeting of Francis and Isabella in Chapter 12 no less so. Yet in both cases the dramatic qualities of the situations go far to offset the stiffness of the narrative style. Once more the rapidity of Cooper's composing led to looseness of structure. His novels are successions of episodes, each of which is interesting, though many of them could be dropped bodily without affecting the plot as a whole. Cooper wrote as his fertile mind dictated from moment to moment. His idea seems often to have been to fill a book, and then stop. If he got through before he filled a book, he began again and wrote some more, as in The Last of the Mohicans. If his publisher was afraid he was going to write so much as to eat up the profits, he wrote the conclusion, had it printed, and paged, and then filled in the gap afterward, as with The Spy. And often, writing in this casual way, his defective sense of humor found, in long, drawn-out passages between minor characters, a pleasure that has rarely been shared by his readers. Cooper was unsuccessful, too, in his development of the characters who depended more on refinement of manners than on vividness of action. Lowell was fair in his judgment that his women did not vary from one model. Quote, all sappy as maples and flat as a prairie. Quote. If he meant the women of the drawing-room and the tea-table. Here, once more, Cooper was adopting the conventional attitude that prevailed throughout the eighteenth century. The tone of the age was frankly supercilious and condescending toward females, who were not only dependents but also inferiors. But Cooper's women of the upper social level were more completely puppets than the women of his contemporary authors. Not a lady in his stories shared the life-likeness of Betty Flanagan, who had the color and vividness with which his powers could cope. And his treatment of the fine gentleman, the Bayard, without fear and without reproach and without any very marked outward characteristics, was equally tame. He admires Major Dunwoody, but does not make him admirable in the way in which he does the big, bearded, ever-hungry, saber-flourishing Captain Lawton. The most important positive creation in The Spy is Harvey Birch, the first of the honest, modest, wise, courageous native characters who figure centrally in his major stories. Lowell says he appeared first as Long Tom Coffin in the pilot, and it is true that Long Tom and Natty Bumpo were somewhat more assertive than Harvey. But Harvey was playing a difficult masquerade role, and at heart he was at one with the succession who were, quote, wet with the dew of this fresh western world, end quote. Cooper has told in his introduction of 1849 of how he was given the material for this spy, and this can be read for itself in the present volume. His daughter, Susan Fenimore Cooper, in an introduction to the correspondence of her father, 
not published until 1922, gives further information and names Governor Jay as the unnamed gentleman of the introduction. My father never knew the name of the spy. Governor Jay felt himself bound to secrecy on that point, but he never for a moment believed that Enoch Crosby was the man. Various individuals twenty years later claim to have been the original Harvey Birch. One man even asserts that Mr. Cooper used to visit at his house frequently, for the purpose of hearing his adventures, and then writing them out in The Spy. This is utterly false. From only one person did my father ever receive any information connected with the life of the spy who was the dim original of Harvey Birch, and that person was Governor Jay. The conversation on the piazza at Bedford relating to the Patriot spy occurred a long time before my father dreamed of writing a book. When he had fully made up his mind to write a novel entirely American, whose scene would be laid in Westchester during the Revolution, he amused himself by going among the old farmers of the neighborhood and hearing all the gossip of those old times, about the neutral ground on which we were then living, the ground between the English in New York and American forces northward. Frequently he would invite some old farmer to pass the evening in the parlor at Angevine, and while drinking cider and eating hickory nuts they would talk over the battle of white plains and all the skirmishes of the cowboys and skinners. Many such evenings do I remember as I sat on a little bench beside my mother, while Uncle John Hatfield or George Willis or one of the Cornells related the stirring adventures of those days of the Revolution. There was a shallow cave in a rocky ledge on the road to Mamaronek, where a Tory spy had been concealed and was stealthily fed for some time. And on the road to New Rochelle there was a grove where a sharp skirmish had taken place. It was called the Haunted Woods. Ghosts had been seen there. The cave and the grove were full of tragic interest to me whenever we passed them. Every chapter of The Spy was read to my mother as soon as it was written, and the details of the plot were talked over with her. From the first months of authorship to the last year of his life, my father generally read what he wrote to my mother. The spy, when it appeared, was brilliantly successful. Never before had an American book attained anything like the same success. Miss Cooper's statement about the reception of The Spy is fully confirmed by the records. They are abundant, but the general feeling for the novel both as a story and as a picture of American life is summed up in the following letter from R. H. Dana written just after The Spy, had been succeeded by the first of the Leatherstocking series, The Pioneers. Quote, Cambridge, April 2nd, 1823. Sir, as I venture to write you without having the pleasure of a personal acquaintance, I am put into a somewhat awkward situation, that of introducing myself. Or to be rid of this, I will, if you please, refer you to your publisher during my short winter day of authorship. A man is said to take a good deal upon himself, who tells another how much he is gratified with what that other has done. Nevertheless, I cannot read two such works as The Spy and The Pioneers, and hold my tongue. I must be allowed to express to you in a few words how grateful I am to you for the deep interest I was made to take in your two stories, and to say something of the delight and variety of delight they gave me. I know that reading is now a sort of fashion, and that the great object is to be the first in the fashion, 
and in order to do that, to be the first in getting a new publication, the first in getting through it, the first to talk about it, the first in talking about it, to show that from the time we took it in hand we were mainly intent upon the way in which to make it clear how much cleverer we were than the author, and how much better we understood his business than he himself did. Now this is selfish and insincere, and though it may sometimes help one to be ingenious, it is pretty sure to make him unsound. To an honest man, who reads a book for the good it may do him, it gives the heartache to be obliged to listen to the overmuch talk of this kind, so that in his fits of impatience he sometimes almost wishes he might say, with eloquent leather stocking, I never read a book in my life. As I am not one of these active, ambitious spirits, nor of the number of those who read as Hiram Doolittle planned, by the square rule, but read simply to be improved and entertained and made comfortable, I always feel more or less gratitude towards the author who does this for me, and if he fills my mind with material beauties, and stirs me with the eloquence of the passions, as you have done, I long to tell him of it. No man can be so moved without being brought into something like a relationship with the writer, a relationship of minds, a very convenient sort of relationship, too, for the author, as he may acknowledge it or not, just as he pleases. It is a good thing for us that you have taken such a course. You are doing for us what Scott and Miss Edgeworth are doing for their homes. Living so near to the times you are describing, being acquainted with people who were actors in them and eye-witnesses, and being able from what remains of those days to judge what was their character, your works impress us with all the sincerity of matter of fact, and the creative powers of the mind seem to present us only actual truths, brightened or softened by the atmosphere that surrounds them. You have a double hold on posterity, for curiosity will act stronger and stronger upon them as time goes forward. How pleasing must it be to you, when not able even to conjecture what in a little while will take the places of all you are now looking on, or what will then be doing where you now stand, to reflect that your descriptions of these passing things will remain the same, and your characters still live and act, to see even through earthly things how immortal is the mind, when old mortality will not be able to read the gravestone over you, the thoughts and sensations of the soul which you have sent out into the world will still be keeping on their bright, mysterious course through crowds of living, busy men. To love fame for this takes away vanity from our love, and makes it sacred. What a full and true description you have given of a newly settled village in a new country! Such a motley company huddled together, yet all distinctly marked an individual, and every one as busy as can be, as always is the case in such a place. I have run unawares into particulars, yet I cannot close without a parting word to leather-stocking. Could we hear such preachers as Natty, when in the boat on the lake, would not the world be better than it is? Grand and elevated as he is, making him so is no departure from truth. He read in a book filled with inspiration. Look on it where we will. But, alas, too few feel the inspiration there, 
or scarcely in that other book which God has given us. Natty's uneducated mind, shown us in his pronunciation and use of words belonging to low life, mingled with his inborn eloquence, his solitary life, his old age, his simplicity, and delicate feelings, create a grateful and very peculiar emotion made up of admiration and pity and concern. So highly is his character wrought that I was fearful lest he would not hold out to the end. But he does grow upon us to the very close of the last scene, which is perhaps the finest, certainly the most touching, in the book. A friend of mine said at Natty's departure, quote, I longed to go with him. End quote. Stranger as I am to you, I should not have ventured on this letter had not Mr. Alston, whose name as an artist must have often reached you, encouraged me to it. If it is taking too great a liberty, I must throw part of the fault on him, and plead my good intentions and excuse for the rest. Allow me to add that my few literary friends feel grateful for the pleasure you have given them, and for what you are doing for the literary character of our country. The voice of praise will, I doubt not, soon reach you from the other side of the water, though it should not come to you down the Connecticut and through the sound from the friends and relatives of Hiram Doolittle and Dr. Todd. With every apology, I remain, sir, your grateful reader and humble servant, Richard H. Dana. End quote. The Spy was by no means the first American novel, but it was the first great success in American fiction, and after a hundred years, it is still being widely read. End Editor's Introduction <laughs>